The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, America bookended by two crises 20 years after 9-11. Taking a hard stand for vaccinations in today's battle against COVID-19. I want this to be gone and I want to travel. And I want to go out. I want to go to football games and I don't want to wear masks. I want to get there. And remembering September 11th, another time our country was so rattled. Howard Lutnick, CEO of Cantor Fitzgerald, which lost 600-plus employees in the terrorist attacks. The raw emotion of losing so many spectacular people and just ripping apart your insides is just a different feeling for us, the people who knew it, the people who saw it. What it's taken to rebuild and what's next two decades later when we're out of the war that day started. New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman. The hope is that the Taliban have inherited a very different Afghanistan than the one they inherited from the Russians. They've inherited an Afghanistan where for 20 years we've been doing state building. It's Friday, September 10th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And it's Friday. Made it to Friday. President Biden now rolling out a new plan, uh, some say controversial plan, uh, to battle the coronavirus, pressuring private employers to immunize their workforce and mandating the shots for federal employees, contractors and healthcare workers. The president had a message for the 80 million Americans who are eligible but haven't been vaccinated yet. What more is there to wait for? What more do you need to see? We've made vaccinations free, safe and convenient. The vaccine is FDA approval. Over 200 million Americans have gotten at least one shot. We've been patient, but our patience is wearing thin. And your refusal has cost all of us. Among the big changes in the plan, the president now eliminating the option to opt for regular testing in place of vaccination for federal workers. He's now asking the Labor Department to issue a rule that requires employers with more than 100 employees to mandate vaccines or require weekly testing. Now, workers at healthcare facilities that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding will also have to be fully vaccinated. And the TSA plans to now double fines for travelers who refuse to follow the federal mask mandate on planes and in airports. But um, I think it's almost sad that we actually had to get to this point. I mean, you know, I've been on this. I've wanted I've wanted this to be mandated from the from the get go by employers. I thought employers actually could get ahead of this. And we're so far behind this. I don't know if that's a popular or unpopular opinion. I still love, by the way, the airlines. I, I would actually love to see the TSA require anybody who gets on a plane to be vaccinated as just an effort to get the country there. Yeah, I have a hard time conjuring up any uh, anti-vax sentiment, personally. I just, it, it, and it's weird, because the people that follow me, I don't know. I just, I, you know, I'm with, I, there's a lot of things I might, we might have similar thinking on. This, this one, I can't, I can't, I don't know. I, now, I don't, I don't feel like getting on a plane and wearing a mask for five hours. Right. 
I want this to be gone, and yes. I want to travel. Yes. And I want to go out, and I want to go to football games, and I don't want to wear a mask, and I want to do all this stuff. So yes. I want to get there. It would and be nice to get back to normal. Yeah, I want to get there. But i got to say, I, I, I'm frustrated with all of this because this doesn't address my two young children. I mean, none of these measures are going to help them this winter. We're, we're looking at months before any of these things make any difference. Nobody did anything before the kids went back to school. I've got two kids who can't be vaccinated. And by the way, kids under age of 12, that's got to be 36 to 40 million Americans who don't have the option of even getting the vaccine. So none of these measures help me. It feels like too late for any of this I guess stuff. It, when, when I purely look at whether a government can say you need to do this, and, and I guess the downside is maybe some long-term thing we don't understand. Right. Maybe, I don't know. The long-term that's thing what, we don't understand but, with COVID, too. But my body and that kind of thing. Right. And, and, I, and But the gamut of the, the true anti-vaxxers, it runs a, a huge gamut of people that think that there's you know, right. chips in there that we're going to follow everything you do or that. I mean, there's crazy stuff that that some people think about. What, but but then there are somewhat reasonable people, I right. guess, that could differ on whether the government can force you to uh, to to take medicine or do something that. Well, you but but see, my view, but I think you but agree a, with this is that back the vaccine is your freedom it is. It actually is freedom. The vaccine is freedom. It's the opposite it's, of what, but but, it, but it's, it's it takes a village freedom. It takes a village freedom. There's no. Question. That's what you're saying. And there's yes. a lot of people that don't like the whole. I'm not a big. It takes a, I, you know anything Hillary wrote. I'm probably not going to be a big backer of. You know that it that it takes a village, and we're all to raise our kids. Even I think parents need to raise their kids. I yeah. don't think a village needs to raise kids. I think parents I are, you need are to help you know you. getting rid of their fine, but there's not but, enough parental. But the other conundrum is if you if you look at most of the polls of people who are unvaccinated right now. They don't intend to be vaccinated. So it's not it's not that they're taking people have some weird reasons. They have some weird reasons. At this point. So then the question is, is there, I hate to say it, a forcing mechanism that gets you to that place? Well, if if fully vaxxed people, if there weren't so, you know, breakthrough problems and then spread. We didn't think that we didn't think fully vaxxed people could spread it as easily. We didn't think you could get breakthrough cases. So that made it more important suddenly for because it used to be that if you were vaxxed, Right. Don't I don't care, care what, what they else do. Does. That's right. your own problem. You right. know? But but now it's now it does mean. That Although I'm everybody... still almost there. If I could get my kids vaccinated, I wouldn't really care about what everybody else is doing because I, I would feel then confident that they weren't going to get really sick. Because it doesn't matter what you do, because right. right. you're you can still bring something home. Right. Okay. What about though the cost? Cost on the taxpayer. Well, that's well, there's the cost of the economy, but there's also the cost of the taxpayer. You mean, to say, not for the vaccines, but not getting the vaccine. No, you're not vaccinated. Uh, you get COVID. You have to go to the hospital. You right. don't either have insurance. Who pays for that? The taxpayer pays for that. So th- there is, it's, it's, not, it's not free. It's not free to not Although, be unvaccinated. Who was it? Was it Delta who said that you have to pay $200 a month right. if you're not vaccinated, additional for, for health care well, insurance? Well, and if, if you want to get go viral, you can say unvaccinated people aren't allowed in ICUs because I've seen people saying right. that and then they get all kinds of pushback from. Yep. No, it's that's why it's I don't, So don't topic. say that. <laughs> but you yeah. just did say that. Kind of. I, I didn't say you're that not shouldn't. quite ready to tell them you can't go to the hospital, but you could certainly wish on them not being able to go to the hospital because they didn't get vaxxed. I think we need to come up with a better. There's got to be a better solution. <laughs> I'm trying to get you there. Trying to get, <laughs> trying to get me out of this to help me? Yeah, I'm, trying to get, I'm not no. sure. Okay. 
Next on Squawk Pod, out of Afghanistan just before the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks. Foreign affairs columnist at the New York Times, Tom Friedman, helps us look back and look forward. Unless this Arab Muslim world finds its way to pluralism, education pluralism, religious pluralism, ultimately political pluralism, idea pluralism, information pluralism, it's going to fall off the face of the earth. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. And today, we are remembering. What you're hearing is from Squawk Box on September 11th, 2001. Morning, everyone. Quick look at the top business news at this hour, despite... Which was a pretty regular day. Joe Kernan, good morning. Good morning. Xilinx late yesterday reaffirmed its guidance of revenues dropping... Until it wasn't. ...with their free cash flow. Yeah, and how do you determine uh, uh, the value? Uh, uh, Is it uh, a matter of... uh, I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt you right now. We have a, uh, what appears to be a very serious, is that the World Trade Tower? Yeah. This is... Mark, a plane hit it? They think so. A, this, is, this is one of the towers of the World Trade Center in Manhattan, which is clearly heavily involved in, in a smoke situation, and one would assume there is fire. Mark, I heard from somebody um, who spoke to someone in the building... They just called me and they said they were told to evacuate and that they were told that a plane had hit the building. It has been 20 years since the September 11th attacks. More than 3,000 Americans died. The pain of that day was felt around the world and started the decades-long, volatile, and complex war on terror. Becky Quick and Joe Kernan spoke to New York Times foreign affairs columnist Tom Friedman about this long war. Here's Becky. Tom, thanks for being here today. I, I know that uh, you covered 9-11 extensively. You were in Israel when this all came out, and uh, you have lots of thoughts about what's happened. We're 20 years later. What are you thinking as we head into this anniversary? Well, Becky, um, uh, I was in Israel when this happened. I just happened to be reporting on the um, situation in the West Bank. Uh, I was in the office of the president of Tel Aviv University, actually, when, when the planes hit. Um, and the next morning, I actually sat down with a group of Israeli military experts and asked them um, what they had learned about suicide bombing. I mean, we all were groping around for any kind of insight. 
And um, uh, the point they made to me uh, was very simple. You know, they said our intelligence is really good. You know, we can intercept Bomber A. We can get him before he blows up the pizza parlor, the bus, the disco. But they said their their ultimate you know conclusion was that um, none of this stops unless the village says no. That it takes a village. That is that the internal Palestinian society is the most important and greatest restraint. Um, uh, and only when they say this is murder, not martyrdom, you know, would things change. Well, um, if you sort of project that then onto the United States and everything that we did over the last 20 years in both Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, in some ways that that uh, analysis, so that argument really did infuse what we, we did. We tried to do state building um, uh, in the Middle East. We tried to do nation building and state building, I should say, um, in order to change the context uh, uh, of that part of the world and hopefully, you know, create a village um, with more pluralism, uh, religious pluralism, idea pluralism, gender pluralism, so it could fight the war of ideas on its own. And um, uh, we, we paid a huge price for that, and it's hard to call it um, uh, a success. Not a total, total failure, but uh, the price we paid for it um, uh, is not commensurate with what we got. Tom, I know you had a theory before that, that part of the reason 9-11 came about was because we were willing to look the other way to a lot of things happening in the Middle East. That All we cared about at that point was keeping oil prices low. Um, and, and here we are 20 years later. How has that sort of issue changed, evolved? And are we any better at this at this point? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, we, we did basically tell all the regimes there, you know, um, uh, you know, keep the, the price of oil uh, low, you know, um, uh, don't bother Israel too much. And you can kind of do whatever you want to your people. You can deprive them of whatever freedoms you want. You can preach whatever crazy conspiracies you want. You can promote whatever extreme puritanical views of Islam you want. But just keep your pumps open, the price low, and don't bother Israel too much. And do whatever you want out back. And, and my view was that um, on 9-11, we got hit with, with the distilled essence of was kind of what was going on out back um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, you know, um, uh, and in the region as a whole. You know, Becky, if you look back um, really now from 30,000 feet, uh, the Middle East fundamentally changed in 1979. Um, which by pure accident is when I happened to arrive as, as a reporter there for, for, uh, for UPI. Um, uh, in, that, in one year, Iran had a revolution um, that brought to power an Islamic revolution, uh, a government. And in Saudi Arabia, what happened was that there was an attack on the Grand Mosque in Mecca. Uh, which was a direct attack on the Saudi ruling family. They both happened in the same year. And Saudi Arabia's reaction to this, that this is what Lawrence Wright, great, great book, Looming Tower, is partly about, was, was uh, to say, well, we're because it was, it was the people who took over the mosque were fundamentalists, and they attacked the Saudi regime as drunkards, womanizers, and gamblers. And so, to protect themselves, the Saudis took a sharp right turn, um, and uh, both to compete with Iran and to insulate themselves from another Islamist attack. And um, they began then, and the price of oil went up. So suddenly, these two Islamist powers had huge amounts of money to promote the most fundamentalist and puritanical view of Islam not only across the Arab world, but across the whole Muslim world. Um, and so uh, when I was right after the 9-11, the first trip I took to the region was to Peshawar, Pakistan. And I visited the mosque where Mullah Omar, the Taliban leader, was trained. And I went into a little room there. There are young boys, maybe age 10, 12. I, I don't know exactly. I recall anymore. And all just praying all day. That's all they were studying. And there was a sign on the wall 
um, that said, this classroom brought to you by the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And so, you know, the ideology was really coming out of there, which is why the first thing I did after 9-11 was go to war with Saudi Arabia and that ideology eventually produced an interview with, with uh, King Abdullah, but with his peace plan, probably just to distract me. Um, but lo and behold, 20 years later, one of the great ironies of this moment, and it's, Becky, it speaks so much to the character of the region, is um, the war of ideas is finally being fought uh, inside Saudi Arabia. Unfortunately, it's being fought by a leader um, who uh, was ready to do the cruelest thing I've ever seen, really, to to a journalist, and that was uh, what MBS did to, 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 to Khashoggi, you know. And so you never have kind of like everything going your way, you know. Um, basically, you you um, you want them to fight the war of ideas. That's the only sustainable way this happens. It's got to come from within. But the people fighting it are themselves highly imperfect. So what does that mean, that we have to turn a blind eye again and ignore these things? Yeah, it's, it's a, um, uh, this is the, this is the dilemma of this whole uh, situation that um, we, we know the cost of what we did and the cost was just staggering in terms of people here, their money, resources and attention. Of course, we don't know the cost of what we didn't do. Um, uh, we do know that there's been no similar uh, significant uh, uh, terrorist attack on the United States. And so um, doing nothing is, is, uh, is not in the cards. We're not going to do that. Um, but, but calibrating the right thing to do is very difficult. I mean, let's remember, bin Laden didn't choose airplanes because uh, he, he only wanted to do a small amount of destruction. Had he had access to something bigger, um, uh, God forbid, chemical or, or, or nuclear, he would have used it. Um, and so uh, one has to assume, and certainly if you're in, in powers of positions of responsibility in, in, in the United States, you have to presume that. And so yeah, I don't think we found the answer. I, I, I just, I, I can't think of any better answer than them fighting the war of ideas and trying to promote that. But that utterly failed in Afghanistan. I think that's what the huge question is. If, if we are no longer there, if we've pulled out and we don't have any intelligence on the ground, what, what keeps those regions, Afghanistan and Pakistan all around it, from hosting new terror attacks against this country? Are we facing that sort of inevitability again? So here, I, I think, you know, I, I don't know. I would argue that, um, the, you know, the, 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 your basic Al-Qaeda guy out there, Beck, he doesn't need to go to, to the Hindu Kush mountains in Afghanistan. There are now so many kind of open spaces they can go to, um, Libya, Lebanon, Syria, Yemen. So the idea that if we leave Afghanistan, you know, that means some, somehow they're you know, free to take it over and operate from there and will want to. I just don't think that that's um, necessarily true. There, there's so many other places we can go to, they can go to. Um, but again, I think the hope, uh, let's just say the, the hope, this is probably wildly optimistic, um, but the hope is that uh, the Taliban um, have inherited a very different Afghanistan than the one they inherited from the Russians. They, they've inherited an Afghanistan where for um, 20 years we've been doing state building, Uh you know, education, um, uh, finance, uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, in hopes that you would have a decent government there that could keep the place under control. How much of that penetrated into uh, Afghan society? I, I, I have no idea. I don't think very much. And maybe the people that most penetrated in, we've already taken out. But you have to hope um, that the Taliban will be so consumed now with their responsibility of making the plumbing work and the electricity that um, and will need therefore outside help, that they will make a different calculation. I would make no prediction that that's the case, but that has to be the hope. 
So, Tom, the, the, uh, I guess, you know, we have troops, you've heard of this, we have troops in South Korea still, we have troops in Germany still. Uh, the 2,000 that, that were in Afghanistan, would that, do you think that, that we should have just exited just to finally get out with a clean break, or, or is there something to the argument that we could have left, um, you know, that we were doing pretty well, we had, you know, a little bit of help for the, the Afghan forces, and we could have stayed. Are, are you glad? We, I guess that's, that's one question. And my other question is, you know, you're, you're an expert in the Mideast and, and you know everything. Did you criticize leaving all that equipment there and, and the, 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 the way that we exited with, with uh, you know, not you know, closing Bagram, all the stuff that you hear on, uh, you know, maybe from the other side of where you stand on things. But did you, would you criticize the way this was handled at all by, by President Biden, huh? Look, let's let's go to your first question, Joe. Okay. You know, um, stay um, with a small footprint or leave. Uh, let's remember, President Trump is one who decided we are not going to do that. That we're but going to. Leave. He changed a lot of things President Trump did, Tom. He's 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 done, he's done a lot. He could have eaten. You know, he has. <laughs> Let me finish. Done everything else that Trump did, he did. Okay. He's changed. All right. All right. Yes. So so um, you know, were you out there um, saying? Yes, he should reverse, you know, uh, this process that Trump started, number one. Um, number two, Biden has said, and I would certainly say, and I so wrote, um, uh, the way we left was, uh, was in a terribly chaotic manner. There's just n- no question about it. It's not the way you'd want it. What was the problem? Why, why did that happen, Joe? It happened because the Afghan government that we had stood up for billions and billions of dollars collapsed. Their, their president left. And once that government collapsed, there was no interface, uh, you know, between us and the Taliban and anybody else. And so um, you are going to get a mess. Uh, I don't think there's a nice way to lose a war. Whether you should have stayed, whether that was a price worth continuing to pay. Let's remember the Taliban. Let's forget what Trump did. Let's take that off the table. That Trump had done a peace agreement with them, released 5,000 prisoners. Should Biden have reversed that? It's a legitimate question. Frankly, I don't I don't know the answer. All I know is for all the success, supposedly, that that country folded up like in a second. Um, And that's because the Afghan military knew they were fighting for a paycheck, not a country and working for an incredibly corrupt regime. And so I I find myself um, uh, really torn, frankly, between the two. Uh, I can see both arguments. Tom, maybe that gets us back to one of your early points, is that there aren't any really good decisions here. There's a lot of bad decisions and a lot of trying to decide what you can live with and what you turn a blind eye to. And again, I think the the bet, Becky, is that the Taliban will be consumed um, uh, by needing to govern the country and need resources. The argument against that is that um, look who they are and, and, and look who's now in power. And I don't have much you know faith in that. But you know, Becky, think about Israel and, 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 uh, and the way it's dealt with this. It's kind of the mini version. So first they decided for regime change. They invaded Lebanon. Well, that didn't work and it actually triggered Hezbollah. Um, uh, and then, you know, they, they, uh, they got out of uh, uh, Gaza. They tried sort of the, the softer approach and they got Hamas, basically. Um, but they've decided not to um, uh, reoccupy Gaza they basically do what they call mowing the lawn. You know, they have a war with Hamas every three or four years. Um, and that may be the approach that we we have to adopt. I'm not saying a war, but there may have to be these 
yeah, different kinds of you know, surgical interventions or whatever, special forces, where we see threats emerging that aren't being taken care of by the region. But the underlying problem, uh, to, to Joe's question, to yours, you know, and, and this is what's motivated me from the very beginning, um, unless this Arab Muslim world finds its way to pluralism, um, education pluralism, religious pluralism, ultimately political pluralism, idea pluralism, information pluralism, it's going to fall off the face of the earth because there, there are just too many people out there who are being educated um, uh, on, on still on, on bad ideas. Um, and, you know, we've, that's the dilemma we face. And to the extent that we can, you know, get out of there by not being dependent on their oil, <clears throat> that's a good thing. And to the extent that we can, by the power of our own example, um, encourage people to uh, take that, adopt that kind of pluralism, that's a great thing. But I think this is a chronic problem that has to be managed. And to Joe's question, um, it's, it gets more dangerous because basically people can pack smaller and smaller weapons um, uh, that can make bigger and bigger, you know, destruction on, visit bigger and bigger destruction on us. And, um, and, and one of them could get through the net miraculously. Nothing has in, in the last 20 years. But we have a dilemma. There is no perfect answer. One thing you, you just said kind of struck me, just the idea that us not being as reliant on them for oil is a good thing. It, it, it seems like we made a lot of progress on that, and maybe we've taken a few steps back the last few years. And now you have President Biden, who is once again asking OPEC to pump more. Yeah, I, I mean, it's, you know, this, is, this is a long-running story. And, and that we're not, well, we are very little dependent on Middle East oil anymore. Um, uh, our European allies are still highly dependent on it. Um, <clears throat> But, you know, it gets back, Becky, to me, to these, again, really bad choices. I mean, the, the, you know, one of the great ironies of this moment, I mean, for sort of insiders following the Middle East, is, you know, you have kind of Qatar and Turkey being thanked, you know, for um, uh, helping facilitate our exit. And they did. They, they were very, very important. But Qatar and Turkey are, are, are supporting basically Islamist movements in the Middle East. We basically put MBS rightly in the penalty box for murdering and dismembering an American journalist. But meanwhile, what he's doing at home in Saudi Arabia, which is both political repression and at the same time, pretty far reaching reform of Islam um, uh, and, and, and that war of ideas, um, that's really important. And so, you know, I've always said in the Middle East, the way you get big change is when you get the big players to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. You know, if you wait for everyone to do the right things for the right reasons, let alone the right way, you wait forever. So you got kind of these two, two choices. You got our, the good guys are Turkey and Qatar, who you know have done a, a great service to us here. But meanwhile, are spreading Islamism and Muslim Brotherhood around the region. The bad guy is MBS, who did this incredibly dastardly thing, but at home is fighting the war of ideas in exactly the way 20 years ago, Becky, we would have wanted the morning after 9-11 and didn't get. And so these are terrible choices. There are no good choices. And frankly, I didn't uh, blame President Trump for wanting to get out. I think they thought about that hard and long uh, the way he did. And I don't blame Biden. I think these are just terrible choices. And um, they're the ones that the leaders at critical moments in history have to make. Tom, thanks for being with us today, kind of talking through some of these intractable problems. Always good talking to you. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, the long road to compensation for victims of September 11th. And it takes a village to recover 
Cantor Fitzgerald's Howard Lutnick on rebuilding after a devastating day. We all committed 25% of everything we made, not just our profits, but our salaries. All of our money would go to the families of those we lost, and we ended up giving them $180 million. We created a bond with these families that lasts till today. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Joe Kernan. Tomorrow uh, marks the 20th anniversary of the uh, September 11th terrorist attacks. The compensation for victims was well publicized, $7 billion uh, to 98% of the eligible families of victims. But the financial impact spread far beyond uh, those families. And Contessa Brewer joins us now with more. Morning, Contessa. Good morning, Joe. Yeah, the crushing financial impact of the attacks of 9-11 spread far beyond ground zero behind me, beyond the families who lost loved ones, and some of those directly affected are feeling the pain 20 years later. I heard this crunching of a sound in an explosion. On 9-11, newspaper publisher Robert Simcoe grabbed his camera and dashed out of his apartment, a block away from the World Trade Center. There were people crying in the crowd. There were people counting floors because they knew that their brother-in-law or their wife or their spouse was on the 86th floor. The families of those who died on 9-11 received compensation for lost income. Simcoe had no way of knowing as he documented the dust and debris, the financial hit his tiny local newspaper would take. The most profitable time period was the summer of 2001. 50 or 60 small advertisers in the broadsheet, all of them located in or around the World Trade Center. But after 9-11, they were all behind a chain-link fence, so we had no advertisers. Many of those small businesses folded, and the broadsheet limped along for years, struggling for advertisers amid the digital revolution, the Great Recession, Superstorm Sandy, and now the pandemic. And last year, Robert Simcoe got devastating news. I was told it was a fast-growing tumor. Stage 4 esophageal cancer. All that dust from 9-11, doctors told him. 9-11 did not end on 9-11. Not a day goes by without one of my clients dying. It's truly heartbreaking. Michael Barish represents victims sickened by 9-11, helping them access the financial aid available through the World Trade Center Health Program and the Victims' Compensation Fund. They just don't realize that they are entitled to the same free health care and compensation as the New York City firefighters and cops. Barish says only 10 percent of the downtown students, workers and residents have enrolled for help in case they need it. Simcoe did and says the bills for his cancer treatment are all covered. A small comfort. I feel a little fatigued. Uh, we still get the paper out. We still get the daily out every morning. Um, but I think I'm ready to retire, you know, but who wants to buy a newspaper? 
People who lived, worked, or studied downtown, construction workers who cleaned up the pile at Ground Zero, news crews, and many others may be eligible, even if they've moved to other states or countries. And they have until the year 2090, 9-0, to apply for financial assistance for health-related claims. Joe? All right, Contessa. There's still... Um you know, we still need to stay on top of, of that, too, because it, sometimes the funds seem to, to not be absolutely earmarked for things. And, uh, you know, it's hard to understand why, but it, it, we see advocates still need to be active it's to make sure that, that people that it, it really is happening 20 years later. We know what the delayed uh, impact is of carcinogens, and it takes 20 years a lot of times for, for, for things to happen. So, you know, it's not over. That's for sure. Thank you. Tomorrow marks two decades since the 9-11 terror attacks. That day, Kenner Fitzgerald lost more than two-thirds of its New York-based employees. But 20 years later, the company has rebuilt, now has more than 12,000 employees globally in a tradition of giving back. And I want to welcome Howard Lutnick, CEO and chairman of Kenner Fitzgerald and BCG Partners. The company's annual charity day was held virtually for the second year in a row uh, because of COVID, but had celebrity help from the likes of Jennifer Garner, Patrick Dempsey, Matthew McConaughey, and so many others. This year's Charity Day raised $12 million for the families of Kenner employees who were lost on 9-11 and for other causes around the world. To date, $180 million has been raised. Howard, I uh, want to thank you for joining us. We've been having these conversations with you now, and it's hard to believe, for 20 years. Um, and uh, I was having a conversation with a colleague of mine who's 10 years younger than I, I am about three days ago, about 9-11. And my appreciation for that day, because I remember every moment of it, seemed to be so very different from, uh, from my colleague, who, who I don't think experienced it in the same way. And so I'm, I'm hoping if you could, and I don't mean to, uh, to have to bring us all back to that day, but the significance of it and, 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 and what it does to you emotionally to even think about uh, even having this conversation with you now is 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 making me, I have to admit, um, uh, a, a bit emotional about uh, about what we all encountered then. Well, you're right. It's it's completely different. I mean, I have senior executives who are 40 years old who, if you think about it, they were in college at the time, so they they don't really have the same you know raw emotion that we have. I mean, I was I was dropping my son off at his uh, first day of kindergarten. And I raced down to the building, and I was standing in the base of the building, grabbing people, hoping I could find, you know, some Cannon Fitzgerald employees coming out when the, uh, when the South Tower collapsed. And I ran, you know, I really literally ran for my life in, in a suit, you know, just running from that tsunami. So, you know, the, the raw emotion of losing so many spectacular people uh, and just ripping apart your insides um, is just a different feeling for us, the people who knew it, the people who saw it, and, you know, just being on today and trying to remind everybody, all the young people, that this, that this matters, that you, uh, you know, Cannon Fitzgerald rebuilt its company to take care of the families that we lost. That people don't think about business that way. But you sit next to people more than you spend time with your family. And you will love them. You actually love them. You might not say it, but in your heart you love them. And if they all were lost, I mean, think of how your insides would be ripped up. And that's what Cannon Fitzgerald knows and that's why Cannabis Show runs a charity day. All these people behind us, they're all giving up their pay today. We're doing as much business as we can. And we're going to raise hopefully $12 million for charity today. You know, in the aftermath uh, and days after, uh, you, you set up this um, 
charity uh, with your sister, uh, who I remember used to go from funeral to funeral. Um, speak about, about that experience and, and, and what it meant and in terms of thinking about how to recreate a business um, in, in, in the aftermath of, 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 the, of those months. So we, we had a call on the evening of the 11th where I said, look, we, ha- we have two choices. We can, we can shut the firm down and we can go to our friends' funerals. Because imagine 20 funerals a day, every day for 35 straight days. I mean, I had my best friend and my other best friend's brother-in-law were buried at the same exact minute and we couldn't even go to their funeral. So it was going to be so destructive. Or we were going to have to pull together and we were going to have to work harder than we've ever worked in our whole lives. And who wants to work that day? But the key is... We're going to do it to take care of our friends' families. And we all committed 25% of everything we made, not just our profits, but our salaries. All of our money would go to the families of those we lost. And we ended up giving them $180 million from Cantor Fitzgerald. We, we paid for their health care for 10 years. And we created a bond with these families that last till today. And the, the proudest thing I can say is we are now employing the children of people we lost that day. I mean, think of what a compliment that is to Canna Fitzgerald and our business here that, that young people who lost their, their father or their mother would want to come work at the firm. Isn't that, isn't that just amazing? What do you think? Is there a personal lesson in all of this for you on, on a very personal basis? Not even, uh, not, I'm not talking about business. I'm just saying as you've now thought about this with unfortunately 20 years of perspective. Well, I, I think what happened is uh, your leopards don't change their spots. They just get really brighter. So you saw people who were nice people become saints. And people who were a little jerky became way off the, way off the spectrum. But, you know, so what happened is we were a, a philanthropic company to begin with. So we just exploded that value. And, and the thing for me, what, what's changed for me is I, I like being partners with more people, with more companies, with working together. Before, Cantor Fitzgerald was sort of winning on its own, doing its own thing. And now we're really happy to be part of the bigger crowd, to work together with other firms, to, to build a great business together. We do it with our employees. Our employees are owners of the company. They're partners with us. It's just a collective event. And, and what I've learned is that you can't be great unless you all stand on shoulders together. And I think that's what Cantor Fitzgerald's learned we built our company from losing 658 of our 960 employees. We now have almost 5,000 people in New York and 12,000 people around the world. We have a great health care practice. We have a great SPAC practice. You know, we have a public company called BGC Partners. That's amazing. You know, we built all these things really together with employees who wanted to give back, who came and joined this company to help the families of those we lost. So I think... There's a piece inside of you who knows what it's like to be a great human being. And when things like this just rip you apart, if you grab that piece of yourself and just drive yourself to be a really good human being, it's in everybody. It's in all these people behind us. I mean, look at them. They're all working their tails off and they're not making any money today to give it away. And that's these are amazing people. Amazing. Howard, culture question for you. And it's a culture question really about today because we're living through um, another crisis of sorts, which is this pandemic. Those Folks are there in person, um, and there's a big uh, question and debate in this country about what the workplace is going to look like in the future and how you create a culture um, if everybody is not together in the future. And I'm curious how you've been thinking about that. Well, I I, I agree with you. I think, you know, people who work from home 
you know, uh, you know, they're in the lower right hand corner of a Zoom. When they resign, they can resign to you without any, you know, without any personal interaction. They could change jobs. So I, I think working together matters. But you have to figure out how to work together. We've we've circled New York with regional offices, meaning we have a South Jersey and a North Jersey, and a Connecticut. So our, we've always understood that people need to have a, a good way to work together, but also a good way to lessen their commute and increase their, you know, their home value, their ability to get home, to drive to a to a local office and work there. So I think there's going to be that kind of balance, but this kind of only work from home model, I, I don't think you can build a great culture. You wouldn't be able to survive 9-11 the way Cannon Fitzgerald did. The people at Cannon Fitzgerald loved working with the other people, and that's why the company survived, because they came together to take care of those families. If it was just a Zoom environment, it never would have worked. So I am a firm believer in you've got to be together, but, but the CEOs have to figure out how you let them be together, but do it in ways that's really beneficial for your employees. Howard, uh, I want to thank you for joining us uh, and offering your perspective and all the work that you've done uh, over these past 20 years. Um, it is uh, an important reminder for, for everybody who, who was around then and uh, hopefully the next generation as well. And that is Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Thank you for listening to this podcast whenever and however you do. Have a good weekend. We'll meet you back here on Monday. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.